Well, good morning, and thanks for making it out on this damp Sunday to celebrate our Lord with us. And why don't we pray again as we prepare to open God's Word. Father, we do thank You for the rain. And I am reminded that this is the only place in Your creation that You have wrapped in an atmosphere and that we have liquid rain, that we have life, and that You support and sustain us. And we are grateful that You stop the rain. And we are mindful of a day when Your judgment came and came until there was just one family left. And so we thank You for Your provision. We thank You for Your mercy. We thank You for the opportunity we have to gather on this day that You have set aside for Yourself for us to sing Your praise, to offer You our prayers, and now to attend to Your Word. We pray for our family that isn't with us, and we are mindful of those that for health reasons aren't able to join us for the fellowship meals, for the gatherings. We pray that you would be with them in a special way. For any who feel isolated and alone, for any who are discouraged and down, for any who uh, the change in climate is causing pain to their bodies because of one condition or another, would you minister to each as only you can and bless them in a special way this morning. So now we thank you again that you have inspired this word to guide us and to lead us and to give us hope and truth until the day that we see you face to face. Open our minds to understand it, our hearts to receive it, our wills to apply it. We ask in your son's name. Amen. Well, in 2005, Texas A&M did a study to investigate the Aggie brand. What does it mean to be an Aggie? And they summarized it in six core values, leadership, loyalty, respect, integrity, honor, and selfless service. And then they began promoting and reinforcing these in manifold ways. So if you go to the student center at Texas A&M, there are six main entryways, each of which has a label above it of one of these core values. So you can go through the respect door to study in the respect hall. It's on their marketing literature, it's on their website, and it's on a specially commissioned statue outside of Kyle Field that has not only the six core values listed, but six allegorical figures supporting one another to, quote, work in unison to accomplish the mission of perfecting excellence of character in the A&M graduates. The monument's 24 feet high because an Aggie is an Aggie 24 hours a day. There are 12 levels because 12 months out of the year, an Aggie is supposed to be celebrating these values. It culminates in a three-tiered capstone because body, soul, and mind, an Aggie is to be an Aggie. And in manifold ways, they're trying to reinforce to everyone who comes out of that school and wears that ring, you are to be known for these six values. When Philippians chapter 4, Paul has been conveying to us 12 values that should characterize not only every Christian, but every Christian community. In Philippians 4, 1-3, Paul urged us to be steadfast for the gospel, that we are unyielding against external oppression. We are undistracted against internal division because we are unified, and we help each other make peace with one another whenever there's conflict that can't be reconciled between parties. The Christians should be joyful in all things, gentle no matter the provocation, and peaceful, full of the peace of God which surpasses comprehension. We are to be noble-minded, that whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, if there is anything excellent and anything worthy of praise, our minds are to dwell on these things. That we are to be faithful to receive the traditions and the truth that we have 
been passed on to us and we're to pass them on uncorrupted and undistorted and unchanged to the generations behind us. And we are to be exemplary in our Christ-like lives, modeling our Lord's life to one another. And then today, in the end of Paul's exhortations at the end of this letter, he is going to exhort us to be supportive, content, and reliant. And specifically, in 2 through 14, we're going to see that Christians support one another. Secondly, that we are content in all circumstances. And thirdly, that we do so as we rely on the Lord. Number one, Christians support one another. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. So Paul acknowledges the financial gift that they sent to him from Epaphroditus while he was languishing in prison. And while he does so, he also acknowledges that even while you lacked opportunity, I know that you were concerned about me. Even when you weren't sending emissaries with gifts, I knew that you were in, I was in your prayers and I was in your heart. And even though, he says, you weren't always able to, now you have done well to share with me in my affliction. So Paul is languishing in a Roman prison because of his proclamation of the gospel. And now he wants to thank the supportive church for what they have done from the very beginning of his ministry, which is namely support him. And we're going to see that Christians support one another in at least five different ways. First of all, Christians support their ministers and their missionaries. Luke tells us that Jesus and his disciples were supported by a group of women who contributed out of their private means so that he and his disciples could minister primarily without any distraction. Then when he sent out his 70, he said that they were to stay in the house, eating and drinking whatever their host gave them because the worker is worthy of his wages. Paul told Timothy that the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul says to the Corinthians, the Lord directed those who proclaimed the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So God intends that just as the Levites were supported through the contributions and offerings of the Israelites, that ministers in a church, the elders who are preaching and teaching in a church, should be supported by the congregation, which is why we have toolboxes at the back, because money is a tool that we use to accomplish God's work in this community, or online giving or mailing contributions. And then also, we are to support the missionaries that go outside of these walls into other lands. So John says to a church in 3 John, you do well to send these traveling uh, evangelists on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I was at a missions conference at Park City's Presbyterian Church in Dallas, and this was the first time I had ever heard the name John Piper and John Piper was the guest speaker at this missions conference. And I still remember his exhortation that he said, when it comes to missions, Christians have three choices. You can go, you can send, or you can disobey. Because all of us are to be involved in making disciples of all the nations. And as even as I look out here today, I see missionaries to Mexico and missionaries to Guatemala and missionaries who served in Argentina and elsewhere. 
And God calls certain men and women to leave their home and to go into foreign lands and to learn that language and to learn that culture and to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. And those of us who are not called to go, support them. Yes, with our prayers. Yes, with our encouragement. But also with our dollars. When it comes to missions, we go, we send, or we disobey. So Christians support ministers and missionaries financially. Secondly, Christians support other Christians who are in need. In Acts chapter 2, when the first church was born on the day of Pentecost, it said, All those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. The only qualification to receive church support was that you were a church member that was in need. In Acts chapter 4, it says that there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. In Acts chapter 11, when the church at Antioch had been formed from those who had been cast out of Jerusalem, when they heard that there was need in the Jerusalem church, it says, in proportion that any of the disciples had means, they sent a contribution for a relief of the brethren living in Judea. When Paul went to go and meet with the Jerusalem apostles and leaders to make sure that his gospel was affirmed by them, it says that they affirmed his gospel, but then says, only remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. And then in Romans 15, Paul says that I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints for Macedonia, northern Greece, and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So now we have Gentiles sending money to feed the saints, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem that they had never met. And it didn't matter that they came from a different heritage. It didn't matter that they came from a different race. It didn't matter that they had never met physically because they were family. Now we as Christians are to be generous in meeting the needs of all of our neighbors. But the first obligation of a family is to care for family. And Christians are family. And so we support one another whenever anyone is in need. Thirdly, Christians especially support other Christians who are suffering for the cause of Christ. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 32, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers of those who were so treated. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So the author of Hebrews is writing to Christians in Rome around the time of Emperor Nero, who was burning Christians at the stake. And because of their profession of Christ, many of them were being publicly ridiculed. And some of them were being imprisoned. And those that were incarcerated for Christ, the other Christians were going and supporting and encouraging and providing for. And as a result, their property was being confiscated. And they went anyway. Because their family was in prison and they were going to go help them, even if that was going to blow back on them. And then the author has, says in chapter 13, Remember the prisoners, and in context, the prisoners who are prisoners for Christ, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are in the same body. Part of your body is suffering, so the rest of the body should help. When one of your thumbs gets a splinter in it, 
all of a sudden the rest of your body is, is attentive on that one body part. If one of your tooth hurts, all of your body is focused on that one tooth and doing anything you can to alleviate the problem in that one body because all of the body is part of the same body. And if one Christian is suffering, we should all be empathetic and saying, how can I contribute? How can I pray? How can I encourage? How can I support? And the days are quickly coming when Christians in America are going to have to be much more intentional about helping other Christians in America. And there are going to be merchants who are going to be persecuted for abiding by their Christian convictions and not doing certain things. And we're going to have to give them business when society tries to pressure to shut down those businesses. The days are already here where we're going to have to buy directly books that are banned by Amazon because they don't approve of the content. We're going to have to begin supporting bloggers and writers and thinkers who are being censored on social media, who are being canceled by techno giants because censorship and cancellation is very much alive in America. There's going to come a time when we're going to have to write checks for churches that are fined for preaching God's truth because that's already happening in Canada and surrounding countries. There's going to come a time when pastors are going to be jailed for teaching the truth like they are in many countries around the world. And the churches are gonna to have to support them and support their families and encourage them. So this is no longer something that we just simply read about in Operation World. And so if you don't know of this resource, Operation World is a daily guide to praying for Christians around the globe. And today, May 16th, if you open up Operation World or go to their website, you can subscribe to their email, get their app. We're reminded to pray for the Christians in Eritrea which most people don't even know that exists, but it's between Sudan and Ethiopia, across the Red Sea, from uh, the Saudi Arabia and uh, Yemen. And right now there are more than 3,000 Christians in prison for their faith in Eritrea. And not just the leaders and not just the pastors, but even normal Christians who won't deny their faith and they're being tortured and their families can't feed themselves. And that should matter to us because if you didn't know until this moment that there existed a country called Eritrea, you know now that our family members are languishing in prison in this unknown place. And that should hurt us. And that should cause us to pray. And if we have an opportunity to serve, we should be able to do that. Because Christians support Christians who are suffering for the cause of Christ. Fourthly, Christians support Christians by encouraging them. Paul says it was wonderful to receive financial support because oftentimes that was the way he would get better food in prison. But even when you couldn't provide for me, I knew that you cared for me, and that meant the world to me. <laughs> to know that I wasn't alone, even when I was physically alone. It's ironic, Paul says, that I lacked for nothing when he lacked freedom, he lacked good food, he lacked adequate shelter, he lacked companionship, he lacked security, he even didn't know if he was gonna make it out of jail alive, but he says, you know what, I was content, but part of what let me endure that was I knew that you cared for me, and that meant a lot to me. And so Christians care about other Christians. And if we know families that haven't been able to join us since last March because of health conditions in their family, we should be calling them and emailing them and texting them and sending them notes because they need encouragement. It's a discouraging world and we need to encourage one another. And finally, Christians support one another by praying for each other. And so I can't go and visit all those families, but I could pray for them. And I can't make my way to Eritrea, but I can pray for them. And one of the beautiful things about this church is every day a need pops up on WhatsApp for anonymous Christians in Asia that this day are being persecuted. 
And we as their brothers and sisters in Christ, halfway across the world, can lift up our gods and say, God, sustain them. Strengthen them. Grant them stamina and endurance and boldness and bravery. Liberate them, if you will. So Christians support one another. It's what Christians do. It's what family does. Secondly, Christians are content in all circumstances. Paul says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And then he goes on to specify, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any circumstance, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Now this is a critical couple of verses because all of us struggle with contentment and discontentment. And so Paul is going to teach us at least four lessons from these verses. First of all, is that contentment must be learned. It doesn't come at conversion. It doesn't just come after a very special, meaningful, uh, quiet time or devotion. There's not some secret book you can read or powerful talk that you can go listen to. It's something that we learn over time. We mature, we grow, God develops us. Now, we can also learn from other saints, and one book that I would recommend is called The Art and Grace of Contentment, edited by John Hendricks, and it's available on a Kindle download for $7. And what he's done is gone and collect many of the greatest writings on Christian contentment from the Puritans, from many of the great saints of the past. So for Christmas, my youngest brother gave me a subscription to something called Masterclass, that's a website that has masters of their craft teaching other people how to do it. And so here is Seth Curry teaching how to shoot a basketball. Here's Steve Martin teaching us how to be funny. Here's famous chefs teaching us how to cut an onion. And this book is a master class of master craftsmen on how to be content. And I recommend it. But more than that, God puts seasoned saints in our life so that they can teach us and help us to learn to be content in all circumstances. My wife was blessed for decades by a dear saint now with the Lord named Mary Troll, whose constant refrain was, God is so good. God is so good. And her life was so hard, so hard. So her husband was a milk deliverer who had a stroke, and they were, they just had a number of challenges health, financial, family, and otherwise. And Mary's constant refrain was, God is so good. And that taught my wife something, and that taught the rest of the family something. Uh, for me, Tracy Jacobson at Vision Ministry taught me so much about joy to be able to go into every single home and weep with every single family and yet leave celebrating the goodness of God, even though she knew a number of trials in her life. And Tracy and Al Jacobson taught me invaluable lessons how to aspire to be content in any and every circumstance. And here in this family, there are big brothers and sisters in Christ. There are uncles and aunts in the Lord. There are spiritual grandparents around you that are willing to teach you how to be content in your marriage, in your parenting, in your career, in your suffering. But it's something we all have to learn and then we have to relearn in difficult days. Secondly, Contentment is possible 
in any circumstance and in all circumstances. When is Paul writing this? He is in prison in Rome in a horrible environment, eating horrible food, receiving horrible treatment, not sure if he's going to be executed or not. So he's not sitting on a beach in retirement living off the vast wealth he made through gospel preaching. Paul is languishing in jail, and yet he says, I can still be content. And we must learn to disassociate contentment from circumstances. Because in Scripture, health and wealth are not promised to us. No matter what preacher tells you, if you just give a big enough donation to show your faith, health and wealth are not promised us in this life. That is a false gospel. And health and wealth do not bring contentment as the lives of the rich and famous should testify to us. And if we look at Scripture, we're going to see that the great saints are often tried the greatest, and yet they were able to be content in their circumstances. Noah was the only righteous man in his day, and he lost everything but his life and his family. Job was the most righteous man in his day, and he lost his health, his possessions, and his family. Abram was the father of the faith, and yet he was often relocated, and he was often in conflict. Moses was a great man of God who spent 40 years herding sheep to prepare him for 40 years of herding an even more unruly group of people. And that was God's great saying in that generation. Joseph is one of the right, most righteous men in Scripture, and yet he was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused, languished in prison, forgotten by those that he had helped, and he was a faithful man. David was a man after God's own heart who God had exalted from following sheep to leading a nation. And David often had to flee for his life. Daniel, another model saint in Scripture, spent most of his life in captivity under three pagan powers. His life was sought by those who hated him for excelling at his job. Daniel was a faithful man. Jesus was a perfect man. And yet he suffered want and rejection and abuse and scorn and betrayal and crucifixion and then he raised up disciples who were persecuted and martyred if you are a super saint you are not secure from trials and suffering that comes later but contentment is possible now and so what we require is not a change in our circumstances simply having more of the good stuff and less of the trialing stuff what we need is a biblical perspective on life now, Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines contentment as feeling satisfaction with one's possessions, status, or situation, which is a really precarious formula for contentment. Because as soon as you get possessions that you think will bring you satisfaction, they're instantly being upgraded, or they've been engineered to be obsolete, or you look at someone else that you got this car and they got the one car up, or you got this set of clubs and they come out with a new driver, or you get membership here and then someone else got membership there. And even if you get the possessions, what happens once we finally get that thing that we bought and we thought was gonna bring us joy? We go shopping again because it doesn't satisfy or scratch that itch for long. So possessions are a very insecure place to place our contentment. How about status? <laughs> status is even worse. You finally go to college, then you get your MA, then you get your PhD, then you become maybe a TA, then you become a lecturer, then maybe an associate professor, but then you need to get your tenure, then you want to become full professor, then you want to become an endowed professor, then you want to get to a better university, then you need better publishers. It never ends. 
And as soon as you become enlisted, then you want to become an officer, then you want to become a field officer, then you need to add more stars, then you need to... It doesn't end. And even if you become great, are you the greatest? Have you been goaded? Are you the greatest of all time? Status is a very precarious thing to base our contentment on. And how about our situations? Is there anything more faltering than our situations? If you're in perfect health now, it's not going to last. If your relationships are wonderful now, they're not going to last. If you grew up in a golden age, in whatever place you grew up, it's not going to last. If our contentment is based on possessions, status, and situation, we're always going to be discontent. But biblically, that's not what we base it on. We, first of all, Christian contentment comes through moderating our desires to biblical standards. Here's what Scripture says. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. If you have food in your stomach and a roof over your head and a little covering over our bodies, God says, that's enough. Jesus said the same thing. Why do you like the Gentiles keep saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we clothe ourselves? All these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. Your father knows you need all these things, but you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all those things will be added to you as well. We need to moderate our desires to biblical standards. The book of Hebrews says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Being content with what you have. If you can't be happy with what you have now, having more won't make you happy. If you can't be content with what you have now, having more won't make you happy. And what do we have? It goes on to say, for he himself said, I will never desert you or forsake you. We have God. He's going to take care of us, and that should be enough. So mom and dad have lived in, I think, 27 different places, and they started out living in a small apartment in Madison, Wisconsin, with mom riding a bike to work, and dad working in various car dealerships and uh, Texaco stations or gas stations to put himself through college, playing ping pong for fun. And I remember asking mom and dad, when was the happiest time as you look back on 60 plus years of marriage? And it was those early years of marriage, living in a small apartment on meager means, playing ping pong for fun. It was simple, they had each other, and it was enough. Knock uh, and I have been married 27 years, and probably the glory days in our marriage in many ways were our first two years when we lived in a 480 square foot apartment. We drove a borrowed car, uh, I worked, she worked. Our entertainment budget for the month, our meal and entertainment was $25. So did we want Taco Bell once a week or were we gonna blow it all on chilies? And then we discovered that La Madeline would let you eat unlimited bread. So we would get a little bowl of soup and dip unlimited bread in the soup and just live off that. And it was great. Every day the grass was greener, the sky was bluer. It was enough. And so we need to moderate our desires to biblical standards. Jesus says, give us this day our what? Our daily bread. Food for today. Secondly, Christian contentment comes through adjusting our expectations to biblical standards, which means we are not exempt from trials, pain, suffering, 
and conflict. If your expectation is that God is going to get you through this life with perpetual health, perpetual peace, and perpetual abundance, you have mistaken earth for heaven. That comes later. That's not now. So we sang from the book of Job. Job, you remember, was the most righteous man on the age. And so Satan said, well, the only reason he's righteous, God, is because you have blessed him so abundantly. He's just in it for the goodies. It's a mercenary love. And so God said to Satan, okay, you can't touch him, but you can touch what belongs to him. And when he lost his cattle and he lost his possessions and he lost his children, it says that Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. He worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gives, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Thus Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. I entered this world with nothing. I leave this world with nothing. All that I enjoy is a temporary loan. God gives it, Todd, God takes it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I'm not going to blame him for the hard things in my life. And then Satan said what? Touch his body. Because then people will hate you if you touch your body. So God let Satan touch his body. Broke out with boils. Broke his health so that he was scraping himself with part shirts. And his wife came and said, curse God and die. And you remember what Job replied? You speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we accept good from God and not adversity? Which is what we all want, right? What we really want is for God to give us lots of good and no adversity. And that is not biblical. That is not promised us. That comes later. Right now, we are going to have trials. We are going to have adversity because God loves us enough to sanctify us and to mature us and to build our faith and to build our hope and to build our love and to let our, long, our longings be heavenward and not on this earth. God loves us enough to grow us in those ways. And he loves the world enough to send us out in it, even though they're going to hate us and reject us like they did Christ. So we have to modify our desires to biblical standards. We have to modify our expectations to biblical standards. And thirdly, we have to submit ourselves wholly to God and accept whatever the Lord gives us. At the end of the day, it's entrusting ourselves to the Lord to be Lord and to do what's right. Now, first of all, that means that we have to make the Lord our shepherd. And if you have not yet given your life to Jesus Christ, then today would be the day for you to acknowledge that you are not perfect, but God is. And that if you are as good as you can be for the rest of your life, you'll never be as good as God. And therefore, you cannot save yourself. But you were never intended to. God sent His Son to fulfill the law on your behalf and to die for your sins so that if you will admit that you're a sinner, that you're not perfect, and if you will ask God to forgive you, He will. And then you can become a follower of Jesus Christ. And then likewise, if we choose not to follow the Good Shepherd, then the sheep are responsible for the, the tough things that they bring on themselves. When sheep wander off away from the Shepherd, bad things are going to happen to them. But for those of us who follow the Good Shepherd, Think with me, if you will, through Psalm 23 and what David has to teach us about contentment. The Lord is my shepherd presently, and therefore, how's it go? I shall not want. 
Now that's not looking backward retrospective. I have not wanted or lacked. That's not present tense. The Lord's my shepherd. I am not wanting right now. Because David knows that the Lord, the good God, the God of Scripture is his shepherd, the one leading him, what does he know about his future? He's not going to lack anything that he truly needs because the Lord is leading him. And sometimes that means what? There's green pastures. There's still waters. And what do we do in those good, sweet seasons? We gratefully enjoy the good things that God has for us. But we don't buy land and build a retirement cottage. That's later. We then follow him in the paths of righteousness, which often lead us through the valley of what? The shadow of death. Because righteous paths lead us down dangerous ways. And that's just part of the deal. But where's our comfort? But the Lord is with us. And his rod and his staff, they comfort us. God is present with us in those tough times. He is with us when we're ailing. And Jesus empathizes with us. Did you suffer homelessness? Jesus was homeless. Did you suffer rejection? Jesus suffered rejection. Have you had your family spurn you? Jesus' brothers rejected him. Have you suffered racism and pre prejudice and oppression and injustice? Well, so did Jesus as a Jew living under Roman oppression. Did you not get the education that others did? Jesus didn't go to college. Did you have to work with uh, meager means? Well, Jesus was a carpenter, a woodworker. Did you have to go without? Jesus didn't have anything. Did you have to trust God for your daily bread? That's what Jesus did. Were you betrayed? Jesus was betrayed. There is no circumstance that we're in that Jesus can't say, I know how hard that is because I suffered that too. And I'm with you in there. I can comfort you in that. Are we going to have enemies in this life? The psalmist did. He had enemies, but God was able to bless him even in the midst of it. And where did the psalmist hope lie? Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We're not home yet. There is coming a time when there will be a place where there is no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. But we're not home yet. We're not there yet. And so we can't expect heaven of earth. And finally, this is why contentment has to be divinely enabled. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, many of y'all have this on t-shirts, coffee mugs. You've memorized it. It was on your varsity jackets. This got you through tough times. This was the verse that got my wife through hard times when she was an early convert, experiencing persecution from her family that wasn't Christian. And it is generally true that God enables us and strengthens us to endure wherever he places us. But in context, what is it that God enables us to do? To be content in any and all circumstances. That's what this verse is about. That's what this means in context. That's the specific truth of Scripture in this place, that when we find ourselves in a circumstance that it is hard for us to be content, we can go to God and say, God, I'm discontent right now. <laughs> I'm grumbling. I'm complaining. I'm lamenting. I'm woe is mean. I'm angry. I'm disheveled. I'm disgruntled. Would you enable me to be content? And God can and God will and Paul is living proof of that. That's the context of this. When you're discontent, ask God for contentment 
and expect God to grant that. And with that, we find additional encouragement and strengthening from Jesus' example. That Jesus knew what it was to live in limited means and hard circumstances, and yet Jesus was content. That we have Jesus' teaching. That Jesus taught us about the world to come and the hope that we have and why we suffer in this life. We have Jesus' promises. That he says, be at peace. I've gone to prepare a place for you. And he most surely is coming back for us. And we will live with him forever and ever. And that gives us hope. We have Jesus' death on our behalf that has given us all these spiritual riches of the gospel that are ours, that no one can take away from us, however hard things get. We have Jesus' resurrection that assures us that we will rise someday in a glorified body that's never going to age, never sicken, never weaken, never injured, never suffer ever again. We have Jesus' church, we have his people to encourage us and to support us and to help us and to pray for us. We have Jesus' spirit placed within us to comfort us and to console us and to grant us peace and strength. Jesus, our Lord, can strengthen us to enable us to be content in all circumstances. What we have, although we don't like it, is we must rely on the Lord. And we don't like that. We don't like being dependent. We want to be independent. We don't like having to trust. We would rather be able to trust in ourselves. We don't like to rely, but the life of faith is a life of reliance. As Paul learned in 2 Corinthians 12, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, Paul the apostle was given a glimpse of heaven. And even short though it was, he says in Romans chapter 8, that I know that the, that the, the glories that await us are so wonderful that the sufferings of this present world aren't worthy to be compared with them. And yet, because God had given him this, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Why? To keep me from exalting myself. We don't know what this was, but we know it was painful. We, noted that, we know that Satan delighted in the pain that it caused, but God used it as a tool to keep Paul humble. Paul wanted to be healthy. God wanted Paul to be humble. Paul wanted to be physically strong. God wanted Paul to be spiritually strong. And so he allowed him to suffer this thing, and he beseeched him three times to take it away, and God said no. I implored the Lord. I begged, I beseeched three times. And God gave him another revelation. He spoke to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well, what? Content. There's our word. I am well content with weaknesses, which we hate, with insults, which we resent, with distresses, which we try to avoid, with persecutions that we fear with difficulties that we want to be delivered from. And why is he suffering these things for Christ's sake? At the end of the day, Paul suffered these things because he had given his life to Christ. God was using him in a mighty way, and as a result, he suffered some great things. And Paul was okay with that because I enlisted and my chief deployed me here and I'm happy to serve. I volunteered and my Lord is using me here, and so I'm okay with what that brings. I offered myself to God and God has placed me here and I am well content where he has placed me. 
and I'm not strong enough to endure it or to do so contentedly, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When I was in high school, I had to memorize a poem called Invictus, which is the Latin word for indomitable. And this is probably going to be familiar. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever gods may be, this was an atheist who wrote this, for my indomitable, unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horrors of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And you can just see the testosterone as he beats his chest. <laughs> and this was a man who died of tuberculosis at the age of 53 after losing a leg at 27, and he was bitter and he was resentful. And protest as he might, he was not indomitable. He was not invincible. None of us are. And it takes but a toothache <laughs> or a child to remind us that we're not as strong as we think we are. And so Dorothy Day, the Christian humanist, wrote a response to this poem called Conquered. It goes like this. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I think the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that despite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though the straight the gate, he cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. When we give ourselves to Christ, he promises not to leave us or forsake us. He is with us always, even to the end of the age. But until that end, until he comes, there's going to be trials. There's going to be lack. There's going to be loss. There's going to be suffering. And that's part of what this first life involves and entails. And God will use us to make us more like Christ and to deepen our faith and to deepen our trust and to put our hope in heaven. And it'll allow us to empathize and to better minister to those around us as we try to share Christ with them. And then one glorious day, Christ will come and we will see him face to face and we will be transformed. And then we will be forever with the Lord on our new earth and glorified bodies. And then comes that life of peace and abundance that we desire, but not yet. And until then, part of our witness is our contentment in the midst of lack and loss and want and suffering. Because we are to show others around us that we can suffer too, but not like the world does. We grieve like others, but we don't grieve like the world does. We suffer differently. We lack differently. We lose differently because of our hope in God. And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what are the characteristic Christian qualities that Paul exhorts us to in his closing exhortations here at the close of his letter? That Christians and Christian communities are to be steadfast in the gospel, unified with one another, 
and helping each other reconcile when our conflicts can't be resolved alone. We are to be joyful, to rejoice in the Lord always. We are to be gentle. We are to be at peace, even when the world around us is in turmoil. We are to be noble-minded, faithful, living model, exemplary, Christ-like lives. We are to support one another. We are to be content in all circumstances, relying on our Lord, who can strengthen us to do all things and is coming back for us someday. Would you pray with me? Father, in truth, we would prefer a different truth. <laughs> we would prefer to have all the goodies now. We would love to be exempt from trials and suffering. Uh, we would love to have deep and abiding faith that doesn't require deep and prolonged suffering. And yet that's not what your word promises us. That's not what this life is. So would you help us to have a biblical perspective on what our desires should be, on what our expectations should be, on where our hope is, so that we can be content in any and all circumstances, relying on you, supporting one another, until that glorious day that the Good Shepherd leads us home. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.